Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this episode, we're going to discuss episode three of season four, titled Man of Steel, which was a flashback episode, conveniently. Really? Very conveniently. As we talk about often here, Melissa was on Broadway and they had to do some reworking. And this episode, Kara had a nap. A very long, (laughs) convenient nap. (laughs) Yes. And long enough to go back into the past and have an entire episode from another character's point of view. And this was also convenient in another way, which was that the actor who plays Ben Lockwood, Sam Witwer, said that he was happy that they got to shoot out of order because they, they filmed episodes episode three and episode four first, and then went back and filmed episode one and two. And he said that he liked that because he got his backstory in this episode. And then it influenced how he played Agent Liberty Mm. and like the inflections in his voice. And he said that he would have probably gone for more scary. And he's he's like a voice actor. So he probably would have been able to really play up the sort of monstrosity of a character, but he went for a more human but still creepy vibe. And he said that they did him a great service by having him shoot four or three before one and two. Yeah. Well, the other thing that was interesting too with this episode was I think it's probably the only episode they've done that was so consistently from one point of view. That's true. I'm trying to think if we've really ever had too many others that were spent so long looking at all of the events that were happening from one angle. Yeah. Well, there was Midvale, which was kind of just Car and Alex. Yeah, but that was also much more, in a way, I would say, of like a limited omniscient perspective. True. Whereas this was very definitely not in his head, obviously, because that's hard to do with film, <laughs> but very much showing life through his perspective and the people that he was dealing with and his very clear and specific thoughts on the characters that we already all know and love and generally consider our heroes. So... Yeah, which is kind of a fun twist on on the trope that happens in television shows sometimes where they'll go and pick kind of like a, a commoner and have it from their point of view and then see the main characters weave in and out of their lives and then have it progress so that at the end of the episode, everything kind of comes together. And I love tropes, so I enjoyed this. But I've also always been interested in how the people perceive Supergirl and aliens in general. This episode was also cool because we kind of went into the past of the characters in a way. And it, funnily enough, addressed just a couple criticisms about how the show handled certain topics, especially in season two, where they kind of addressed anti-alien sentiment with Cadmus, but didn't go into it with as much depth as we might have hoped. And it was kind of cool to see that, oh, things we expected to make people angry, like the Daxamite invasions and to solve the chaos that happens in National City, did in fact make people angry, but or affect people in, in different ways. But we didn't see it because we have the point of view of our main characters and it's kind of like an unreliable narrator situation where we follow their priorities which is something that they also address thematically in the episode Mm -hmm. and then just a fun tidbit was that james said in the flashback which seems to be set close to the episode triggers or during it he said to eve can you make sure that we have a reporter downtown for the bank robbery we can't expect Kara to be everywhere all over so one of the concerns that we might have as a viewer is like is Kara actually like able to manage juggling being a reporter and and all the stuff we see happening plot-wise. And it was cool to see him reference that she has an established reputation of being all over. Even though in this case, it was very clearly kind of an excuse to get her to be able to deal with the bank robbery, which was Psy as Supergirl as opposed to as a reporter. Mm. Oh, and just a quick thing in terms of portraying flashback episodes. It was cool to see Alex pose the question of the episode, which was, who would do this? You know, who would do this to Supergirl, attack her in this way? And basically, what's the motivation behind that? After she says that, we immediately cut to the flashback and Ben's story. So he sure did. (laughs) Huh. This is a separate tangent of a thought, but I wonder if we're going to find out if there's secretly a bunch of people who think Lena's on their side because Lena was willing to use the thing against the Daxamites. Mm. Because we saw in season three that like Morgan Edge was really critical of her for it and made it sound like it made her a bad person. But it seems like there's people who would be like in favor of it. Yeah. Although from Ben's point of view, she's kind of more on the... Well, he doesn't like her because she ruined his family, obviously. Yes. But she's also using like, because Lena's such a scientist, so she's not going to be like, oh, this is an alien metal? I don't think so. Um, but she's she's promoting this progression in a way mm. that he does not like because, you know, it impacts him directly. Yeah. And because of a lot of other reasons. <laughs> 
So like we see Lena and Kara and Alex and Supergirl and John through another point of view. And we get to follow this person and his own story in this episode. Yeah. Well, this episode was kind of neat in that the pace of it was a little bit different because obviously without Melissa there, they were trying to avoid doing too many big stunts Mm -hmm. with Supergirl because you wouldn't have been able to show her face very much. And the other thing that was really curious was the reactions to the episode, just generally speaking. I have looked at this for a while now just because I did an ethnographic project looking at um, fandoms and online space. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago. And there were several very different responses to the episode. Like there were a lot of people who appreciated it, even though after all the various tragedies in the U.S. the past week, it was like a heavy episode yeah. to, to watch on that weekend. But then you also had people who are claiming to be left leaning, who are saying that this episode was bad and no one should watch it and it should never have been aired because it's making you sympathize with the bad guy and then you had people who apparently the bad guy hit a little too close to home and if you looked at their profiles they were mostly white dudes complaining that the show is too pc and they're quitting watching it forever now Mm -hmm. because it's just not for them which clearly they don't feel positively represented if that's a concern people have Exactly. So in my mind, that says that the episode is essentially serving its purpose because it was upsetting the kind of people you'd expect it to upset mm-hmm. to some degree. Yeah. But it also – there were just some like really odd reactions as well in terms of people just not grasping – that because a character might be the narrator, that doesn't mean they're the protagonist and that you're supposed to root for them. Mm-hmm. So that's something that you figure out through context and looking at how they're, the, the narrator or lead character is treated by everyone else around them. Like every person who's from their point of view, they think maybe they're the hero of their own story. But if you look at the way that for Ben is treated throughout the length of his narrative, nobody condones anything he's doing, mm-hmm. by and large. It's very much you see how he became so radicalized and, and how he became the way he is. But you're never supposed to be like, yeah, I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of reactions that were like, why are you making me sympathize with this character? And then finally... Five minutes later, the same people live blogging would be like, well, if you want me to like him, I sure don't. And it's like, you're not supposed to. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you talked about how the episode's sort of doing its job by making people uncomfortable. And there's, of course, the I feel like this person is close to who I am. That kind of situation would make somebody uncomfortable. But the other type of person you were talking about who perceives it as they're trying to make me sympathize with them. I think that's also the audience that the writers that this episode were attempting to talk to. Mm-hmm. Queller had an interview in which she described the direction that the season is going. And she talked about the villain of Agent Liberty and his history and analyzing sort of how he happened, how he was formed into the person he is now. And she said, you can't reach someone if you don't understand why they are the way they are. And talked about trying to bridge the divide. And I think that sort of speaks to the idea that the person is still wrong and you can recognize that, but understanding how how they came to their wrong ideas is important if you want other people to not have those same ideas, if you want to stop harmful ideology from spreading. Yeah, exactly. And you had a really good um, kind of comparison example of situations when this is exactly what you want and need to do. Yeah, I'm watching the show called Mindhunter. It's based on a true story, but sort of fictionalized. The characters have different names and it's not like a direct telling of any kind. But it's sort of about how sections of the FBI started to try to understand serial killers and just kind of look at the psychology of how they were formed. And there was in this fictionalized telling and probably I would expect in reality, a lot of pushback to that because they didn't approve of like even wanting to consider them as like human people. They wanted them to stay monsters and stay other and separate from them and incomparable. And it made them uncomfortable. The idea that there was something that you could understand about them, that you could turn it into something that makes sense because it's kind of a threat to yourself 
in a way and a threat to how you perceive the world. And if events in someone's life or ways of thinking form people to do really horrible things that you would never even consider doing, if those things create this person, then that can happen to anybody. Exactly. Well, and it's interesting, too, that you picked an example that dealt with, say, like the FBI, Mm -hmm. um, because I've actually in the past read professional journals meant for people who work in the FBI and similar law enforcement agencies for research purposes. And they do have articles in there that explain the psychology of different kinds of either criminals or people you might need to talk to as witnesses or contacts. And it's not because you want to be like them or you think they're likable people. It's because you need to know how to communicate with their language if you want them to tell you any kind of useful information or cooperate with you or get them to help you potentially to like go after a bigger criminal, for example. Mm -hmm. Understanding is a tool. Yeah. And so there's a difference between kind of analyzing a person's behavior and understanding how it got to be the way it is and condoning that behavior. Mm -hmm. And I thought the show did a really good job of walking that line. Like it could have veered over a little Mm -hmm. too far into sympathy for him, but they managed to kind of keep that tone pretty well. Yeah. It wasn't overly emotional like even the scene where his father died you're still you don't feel like him you don't feel there with him emotionally it's still very like oh this is how this happened kind of in a logical way as opposed to oh there was no other way that this could have gone it doesn't play on your emotions to make you feel sad or make you feel bad for them yeah like racist grandpa actively chose to go and die rather than continue to live in a world he was morally opposed to. Mm-hmm. And Ben, instead of, you know, feeling sad about losing his father or concentrating on his own family, turns it into this outward focused anger towards other people mm-hmm. for essentially robbing him of what he perceives as something he deserves, which is very much the profile of like white dudes who commit big, large scale mm-hmm. crimes that harm other people. Yeah. So there's a logical progression of how he got here, but you never go, well, that seems like it's the right choice. Well, I would hope not. I mean, <laughs> clearly some people were offended because maybe they thought he did make the right choice. Mm-hmm. And can tell that the story is not trying to frame it that way. Exactly. So while we're on the subject of the authenticity of that storytelling choice and what it did as far as developing the world that was already established in 401 and 402, you had pointed out something else about kind of the behind the scenes stuff at this episode. Yeah. Derek Simon wrote this episode and And he also wrote Shot Through the Heart, which, if you recall, was the win-focused episode about how his mother came back and kind of dealing with the realization that she was in an abusive relationship when he was young and why she made the decisions she made. And in terms of world building, which is something we discussed in the last episode and where they tripped up a little bit, I think that this writer in particular seems to have a good grasp on how humans work and kind of being able to recognize situations that feel authentic. Tick. Hmm. specifically with Wynn's mother and then now in this episode with this character of Ben Lockwood. Well, yeah, and then just looking at it from a writing standpoint, it's actually quite difficult to write a narrator you don't agree with. Hmm. And I have had to do that for, not for fiction purposes. I mean, I've done it for fiction as well, but specifically in um, like law classes, hmm. I once had to argue against freedom of speech. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And it's a challenge to be able to do something like that and to put your own views aside long enough to give credibility to this other thing that you want to deal with. And it's something that it's good to get practice at doing that. I know I had to do it when I took like poetry for creative writing, for example. Mm -hmm. We had an assignment where you had to actually write about like an emotion that you either didn't often express or like from a persona that didn't reflect necessarily directly who you were just so that you understand that saying like the speaker is not necessarily you the author Mm -hmm. so trying to be authentic at the same time is really fundamentally maybe disagreeing with something is a struggle well yeah but also recognizing that it's important to get experience as a creator in in exploring more points of view than just your own because Mm -hmm. that gives you more opportunities to tell more enriched and kind of more nuanced stories Mm -hmm. because if everything is always from one point of view that's very much the same, it, everything gets very bland after a while and even your conflicts start to feel really repetitive because they're always based in like one particular kind of experience. Yeah, which get, kind of goes back to that idea of understanding people. 
various experiences <laughs> being a tool you can use and being important for lots of different things. It is. And so one of the strengths that was really apparent in this episode was the way that it used specific language that we've seen a lot in political discourse in the United States and probably also at least in other English-speaking countries in terms of describing, you know, immigrants, describing younger people who are often perceived as more liberal than older people, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Which can sometimes feel really on the nose and like, yeah, sometimes they uh, they do it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and this show in particular. But I felt like they did a pretty good job this episode. Yeah. Well, this was way better than the random build the wall yeah. from season three. And the one example I have, which is something I didn't even catch the first time around, which is why I like it in terms of subtlety. When Ben is talking to his student, the young alien girl, and he says, I can see why this point of view would be problematic. And he kind of slightly emphasizes the word problematic and like kind of gestures at her in a way that I think really interestingly kind of demeans that mindset of like when something's problematic. Mm -hmm. And then just a couple of other words like saying snowflake, which is a word we hear a lot in the political sphere. Well, it's it's used as a derogatory term for, for people who think that you should care about like the mental health impact of your words. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, emphasizing millennials as like a buzzword that you hear a lot. And then they also made a point within the context of this episode to explain why they were using the term roach and cockroach with um, racist grandpa defending his use of this very negative word by saying, well, they're resilient. They'll survive everything, mm. which we had put in our list of kind of things that you could read to supplement the conflicts that are happening in this season. There was an article explaining how the term roach has a very long history of being used in a derogatory way towards slaves, former slaves and immigrants to the United States. So I was glad that they actually did make a point to clarify in the show, like what it meant and how they were using it mm -hmm. for people who maybe haven't heard it in real life, unlike Ben's son, who apparently heard it at school. Mm. It's another sort of world building plus of the episode, not assuming that everyone knows what you're going for. Exactly. Just like they also snuck in the reference to uh, Donald Trump's summary of the neo Nazis at the Charlottesville mm. protest. When Ben is talking to Alex when he's on the stretcher in the ambulance, he mentions that the other the steelworkers who rioted were very good people, which is a reference to Trump describing the neo-Nazis as very fine people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even catch that on the first watch. So that was actually impressively subtle yeah. for this show. <laughs> yeah. I caught it, but I liked that it wasn't like exact phrasing and mm -hmm. it felt like it felt more organic. Yeah. Adding color to the analogies as opposed to kind of trying to force the comparisons in there too abruptly. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that they did really well with language was they evolved the way that the Lockwood family talked and it started out as being inclusive in the sense of saying like, well, why is the FBI working with Supergirl? And then transitioning to being exclusionary and saying, well, why are these people working against against us mm -hmm. and interpreting like the choices of strangers as being a personal attack without really probing into like thinking about anything beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. And you see then by the end of Ben's descent into radicalism, when Lena tries to reach out to him after his father dies, he's already he started referring to aliens as things instead of people. And he calls the image inducer sick and, and thinks it's like morally abhorrent in a way that he two years ago absolutely would not. Have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of track this guy and his performance and be like, he seems like generally the same guy. And then he says increasingly more concerning things. His personality seems like kind of the same and pretty consistent. And then it's just, oh, that's more intense than, than you were before. And so the language was really important to the storyline. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned Ben's son saying the word roaches, which he picked up from the kids at school. And I've kind of just in these past three episodes, I've appreciated how they have integrated young people. Like in the first episode of the season, when there was the tiny tot in the background of the telephone call in the scene where Kara saw the whole database of the deep web. Mm. 
And she was saying like hateful things and planning to hurt aliens. And then we hear that in the background, there's a kid there and she's living like a normal life. But then this scene in episode three brings up the concept of, you know, them being impressionable and the ideas that they're receiving from the adults around them. I just thought it was cool to see that kind of touch of reality and how Ben's son is saying words that maybe he doesn't have the full context of what they mean or how bad they are. He's picking up from other kids, but then he's also thinking that Supergirl is going to come save save them. So I think it's it's cool to see a little bit of the point of view of a kid. Because we saw so much from Ruby last season. True. Which reminds me, because there were some people who kind of had criticism of this episode in saying that it was only depicting people who didn't like Supergirl and why aren't we seeing people who do? We saw that for pretty much all of season three. Mm-hmm. And again, with extremists, people who liked Supergirl maybe too much. Yeah. In addition to people who liked her a normal amount, like Ruby and Sam. The point of the storyline is kind of like, oh, this is a new problem. <laughs> so it makes sense for them to kind of focus a little bit more. The point of this story is everything in moderation. <laughs> True. And then this concept kind of connects to the overall idea of the season, which is like using ideas and words to influence people in positive or negative ways. And we found out that Agent Liberty, aka Ben, um, as a professor in this episode at a university, which I liked because people often have a perception of maybe like racist people or xenophobic people, bigoted people of various types that they're only uneducated. Yeah. And that's definitely a perception that the media free frequently plays up in their coverage of like, why are people the way they are? And how did we get this way? And it's like, yes, there are certain demographics that are more inclined to vote along those lines. But some of it also is like geography and your exposure to difference and your tolerance for new ideas and like change. Mm -hmm. And those are things that you can be afraid of, whether you're well educated in a traditional sense or not. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, even trickier. We see this character who is an educator himself spreading ideas in a concerning way. I thought it was cool that he is a professor and has this job of influencing people and how they think and like shaping their minds and how it um, parallels with Kara as a reporter. Mm. And that, you know, both of them have these other identities where giving speeches is is kind of a big part of it, especially for Kara as a superhero, maybe not other types of superheroes. But the flashback opened with Kara giving her kind of famous hope speech from the end of season one, which is kind of fitting that it's a hope speech that they're bringing that back because the theme of the season is hope versus fear. It was interesting because there were a couple lines in this version of the speech that we didn't hear when they originally broadcasted the speech in... Well, in the edit that they put together for that episode, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They included this time the lines, I will never abandon you and I'm doing everything that I can to fight for you, but I can't do it alone. And then she continues her speech about how they need to hope. And I thought it was interesting that they sort of emphasized her like promises in a way that she'll be this person for everyone Mm. because then that becomes important to these characters when they feel let down. Yeah. And then racist grandpa, as you called him, Ben's father talked about how, you know, he said, yeah, sure, we can all leap tall buildings in a single bound. He talked talked about how, you know, it's fine for her to have hope and like it makes sense that her being who she is as an alien with super strength. Well, and it also kind of called back to Jean's point about how Kara experiences certain kinds of privileges based on who she is, where she maybe doesn't understand necessarily the difficulties that other people encounter. Yeah. Uh, And then later on, we see Raya giving her her broadcast on television. Oh, my God. She says, People of Earth, do not be afraid. And it's kind of like very traditional, like movie alien speech of like hostile takeovers. Yes. Um, and both of these people telling uh, this family not to be afraid when, you know, everything's falling apart around them. Literally and figuratively. Yes. Uh, telling them to have hope and then things don't go perhaps the way that they had hoped for. Ha ha. <laughs> And so I thought that was a good way to demonstrate that hope versus fear idea through speech. Well, and you also, too, have the Jean is leaving the speech at the rally before he goes to get Kara. And then we Mm. segue to the flashback after that. That's true. So people are going to be giving a lot of speeches this season, perhaps. (laughs) We're going to be hearing a lot of speeches, it seems like. So both Kara and Ben are trying to influence people with words in this season. And it seems like they have some other similarities. Obviously, Kara has her patented optimism, which we saw become a little bit of a problem in the past 
last couple episodes. But Ben in his family has been this very like reassuring force and trying to get them to push on despite the situation that they're in. Yeah. At the same time as he's also blaming people for his circumstances. Well, but before he starts to do that, he does always try to offer a solution or like find a positive way to spin even when bad things happen. Like, yeah. Oh, you're having difficulty with your job. Well, we can retrain everybody and like, you know. Mm -hmm. And like at what seems like a low point for the family, which will then become lower (laughs) as the story (laughs) progresses, uh, right before the house burns down and they're all fleeing for their safety because of the Daxamite invasion, he says, because all we have is right here, but you know what? That's okay because we're a family and we can come together as a family. So he speaks in ways that kind of remind me of Carr's values. And then just sort of a little interesting performance thing he smiles a lot even when he's angry which is something we've seen Kara do in certain scenarios Hmm. like in season one when she was talking about how she would throw Siobhan into space that she dreams about it she was smiling and even in this episode in the bar when we saw her she kind of has this like tone about her that is light but at the same time you know that she's angry yes (laughs) yes indeed and she tries to de-escalate the situation at the bar by mentioning like Kara like what song she's going to go for. What was it? Africa by Toto or um, yeah. the Beastie Boys one that she ended up going for. So she kind of uses a little bit of humor there. And then I felt like that was a good parallel with when Ben was in the car with his father and his father was talking about Ben's education, maybe twisting his mind and Ben tried to lighten the mood by making a joke about how it was worth every penny. So I thought that it was interesting that they had a few similarities in that way, but they have their differences. <laughs> I mean, they sure do. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but that's actually a very valid point to bring up because, like, Kara's had all kinds of terrible crap happen to her. <laughs> yeah. And has never felt compelled to take over Earth except that one time with Red Kryptonite. <laughs> but, like, in terms of resiliency, like, yeah, there's there's only so much you can go through and it's like, maybe they failed because they're human and Kara's not. <laughs> um, well, that's the point she tries to make to Eliza in season three. <laughs> But if you think about it, every one of the major characters in the show has had all kinds of terrible crap happen to them and they're not extremists who murder people. But one of the interesting framings of thought that we saw in the episode was, well, um, Ben is a history teacher and thematically how that connects to the situation that he's in. Yeah, so that's worth pointing out because there were actually questions among the people who watched with us about what subject he was teaching. Because if you're not particularly familiar with U.S. history, it might not be immediately apparent. Mm. So it was kind of neat that they chose to make him a U.S. history professor because through his story, the show is highlighting tensions that have been a part of American culture since like before the founding of the country and that this push and pull between kind of recognizing that immigrants are a part of the legacy of the United States and wanting to keep them out. It's an underpinning to pretty much the whole setup of the government and the politics that have been in play ever since the 1700s. So the different topics that he kind of grabs on They're all pieces of information that you get taught in school and that you start learning fairly young. But even though he's delivering like some basic factual knowledge, the ways he chooses to interpret it grow more and more unorthodox and extreme and just flat out wrong as time goes on. So he starts out with his kind of little tangent of what is progress shouldn't the past matter in addition to the present and in his discussion of progress he starts out by saying you know we always think it's good like you want more progress progress is important you need to feel like you're getting better at things but who gets left behind when progress happens you also have the analogy in this episode of steel the steel industry being replaced by nth metal which is a stand-in for coal Mm -hmm. and energy sources that are losing jobs a lot in many regions of the united states throughout the 20th and into the 21st century, which is then how we got the name of the episode, which is Man of Steel. Rather clever. Uh-huh. They do enjoy their puns. They do. Which is kind of interesting because of the arc that Lena's possibly going through right now in terms of scientific progression. Mm-hmm. 
And obviously we see her story intersect with Ben's in that kind of way in this episode. So that's sort of interesting in that we have Lena as representative of scientific progression. And then we have this more historical framing of thematic, like the past and racist grandpa is resisting adapting to this progression in terms of shifting over from steel to nth metal. And obviously we see that he has like concrete difficulties in perhaps doing so, but that's kind of a undercurrent of his whole character, which is, you know, feeling left behind. Yeah, and in some ways it echoes what the police officer said in 402 about feeling like society is passing him by. And honestly, it's something that I've heard my like 90-year-old grandma say about just feeling really removed from society. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to turn into angry racist murderers. No. <laughs> Um, generally speaking, you don't. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting with the grandfather is that we find out in the context of the scene later where he's dying in his steel mill that he's kind of apparently always just been an asshole. Um, but it's interesting to see that too in, in the sense that he's kind of clinging to this way of life that he's known because there's also this subtle conflict happening of like a blue collar parent who wanted to give their child a better life and so they do and then Ben goes to college and then his father ends up kind of resenting it because now he feels like they're not as close intellectually and that his son looks down on him and is judging him very harshly and I, I actually saw that within like my grandmother specifically versus her kids who all did go to college because she as a woman in like the 1940s did not and so she would always kind of feel like she was being left out of the loop in conversations or treated like she wouldn't understand and you know, that over the long term has an impact on people, which we see later when Ben goes to talk to James and Lena. And so you have, on the one hand, Ben's dad feeling kind of disenfranchised and condescended to when he talks to Ben. But on the other hand, you then see Ben feeling the same way with that same kind of powerlessness when he tries to make Lena and James understand what's been happening to him and the people like him who've been really negatively affected by these huge catastrophic alien invasions. Mm -hmm. And that resentment and that frustration starts to boil over and show up in the ways that he's teaching history. And I really really appreciated the way that they showed this and it, it demonstrated that somebody has been reading a lot of the articles that have come out about this and, and the strategies that these really extreme conservatives have been using over the past five years or so. Which is the sort of research that you would kind of hope that they would do for this type of episode. Yes. So one of the first things that you see him do when he decides to go off script and have his little tangent about progress is he does something that conservatives have started doing since the advent of the internet where they go and study the way that liberal groups talk and then mimic that language and those word choices in order to advocate these really, really conservative or really extreme ideological tenets. But it's disguised. So people think that it's more moderate than it is. Mm -hmm. And he does that in terms of how he starts talking about progress. He's like, you know, it's political and scientific innovation. It's important. It sounds like he's encouraging his students to think critically because initially he kind of talks about the annexation of the Americas as colonies by Spain and Portugal and then England, etc. And how that had a negative impact on native populations. But then he suddenly connects it to granting amnesty to alien refugees. Like those are similar things. <laughs> When one involved colonists coming and launching biological and physical warfare against people and the other involved housing people with no homes and giving them citizenship when they already lived in the country. And he also completely skips over lots of other relevant historical examples in this thought process as if they don't matter. And then when you see him later in the, in the scene after time has passed and he's grown kind of more extreme and more entrenched in these really anti-alien views, you have him start off this lecture where you see the term manifest destiny in the background. He decides not to talk about it, but it is important that it's there because it's 
against this 19th century belief that America had the right and like moral obligation to expand coast to coast and like spread its glorious civilization and democracy to everyone and destroy the savage Native American people. So, I mean, it was straight up racist. Mm -hmm. But then instead of talking about that, he starts jumping ahead a little bit in history and talking about the concept of nativism, which may be an unfamiliar term to people who it's been a while since you took U.S. history or if you're not from the U.S. because it's a term that really doesn't come up except in the United States. Um, And it's generally understood as as us versus them. Another way of putting it is xenophobic nationalism. Mm -hmm. But one of the nice details of that scene is that when he explains nativism, he gives a factually correct definition of the term. Mm -hmm. But then he just launches into this completely weird lecture that should have concerned his students because one thing you have to keep in mind is that like they're taking a required American history course. If they've gone to school in the United States, this is something that they would have studied in relative detail at least three or four times already in their lives to this point. So they should be aware that he's going like way off book. Mm-hmm. And yet you really only see maybe two or three students kind of raise their hands and and say like, hey, wait a minute, this is not from our book. This is not relevant. Like you're being really terrible. And very few students actually actively get up and walk out after he insults the, the one alien student. Mm. But it was really a good choice that they used that term because this is something that has come up repeatedly throughout United States history. And actually the last time you had a really strong nativist sentiment was about 100 years ago and it was a huge backlash against large migrant populations, much like now, that were considerably other compared to American society as it stood in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They were mostly not considered white. They were mostly not Protestant and so therefore were considered extremely other and subversive. And they were also more politically diverse in that you had people coming in who were pro-socialist, pro-communist. And this is what led to like the first Red Scare in the United States with a fear of another revolution like the Bolsheviks in Russia, uh, (laughs) coincidentally. (laughs) And the things that contributed to this anxiety and this extreme xenophobia that we saw in the the 1910s through the late 20s were an increase in urbanization. So you had people moving from small communities to bigger cities. The increase in industrialization where people felt like they were losing their way of life and their economic security because all the jobs were changing. And then you also saw this shift away from religion as a foundational system and to this reliance and belief in science and technology. Mm. And so all of those things created a great deal of anxiety in people who weren't equipped well to cope with it. And extremism is what happens when you have lots of fear and anxiety broiling around if nobody tries to make it better. And it's convenient that this term came up in this episode because we just had Trump recently mention being a nationalist. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few things in this episode which are uncomfortably timely. Yeah, this was this was a lot after the various shootings of minority people and the sending of explosive devices to all of the current president's political opponents. Mm-hmm. And then him insisting that his words that he shares publicly to millions of people every day have no impact on the thought process of anyone who reads them. <sighs> yep, which that concept is exactly why I like that they're presenting Agent Liberty this way. You know, after there's a hate crime or an act of domestic terrorism, there's always this wave of concern about mental health. And for people who actually care about that all the time, it might look like a positive reaction. You know, it's important to spread awareness about mental illness and how to handle it personally and interpersonally. But you have to look at who is saying that and why they're saying it. Like what you talked about, Ben maybe discussing the negative effects of progress for the Native Americans, something that a lot of liberally minded people care about, but he's using that context to suit other ideas. It's like framing a domestic terrorist 
as a victim of mental illness shifts the focus away from any ideological accountability, from the need to take care in the concepts that we as a society endorse. But when you get rid of the concern for mental illness, you can see pretty clearly, like with Trump, who insists that we don't need gun control, you know, who doesn't care about the significance of the word nationalist, who doesn't think that the system needs any fixing, and who says that this guy's a madman, a wacko. If someone like Ben is just a monster beyond our understanding, then our hands are clean. But if he's a person who was formed under the circumstances of our society, it's on us. And then, you know, there's something to be done. We can stop this from happening to others or learn how to spot and handle those who are already extreme. So this is quite timely and appreciated. (laughs) Yes. So by the way, also, fun fact, why is our friend Benjamin Lockwood so fond of Benjamin Franklin? Because they share a name. Because they share a name and also because he was a big old racist. So Benjamin Franklin, now seen as like fun, rowdy old grandpa in our collective cultural mind. It's actually like racist grandpa. Is actually racist grandpa from this episode. (laughs) So when he was thinking about what the United States should look like when it became a country, he wrote this nifty essay called Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind, the Peopling of Countries, etc. Yeah, that was really the title. It just ended with (laughs) etc. Where he laid out his strategy for how they were going to populate this new nation. And he was basically pointing out that since it was across the ocean from Europe and Africa, they had a great opportunity to not pollute the water, so to speak, by adding any dark people to the genetics of the population. And the whole essay is really just like building upon that idea. So he was not really an advocate for uh, the melting pot of the United States. Let's put it that way. And also uh, Ben quoted Winston Churchill at the funeral for his father. Churchill was also a racist and an anti-Semite. So, again, choosing some good historical figures for terrible people to find inspiration from. We should have a segment called Historical Figures You Didn't Know Were Horrible. I mean, it's really interesting to to read, like, British statements on Churchill because so many people are like, but he's an iconic figure and everyone was that racist. And it's like, no, buddy, they weren't. (laughs) (sighs) Abolition had been a thing for a long time before he was born. Like, um, anyway. So we've seen Mr. Ben. Which one? Mr. Ben Lockwood, Captain Anti-America. Captain Make America Great Again. Yes, there we go. (laughs) Kind of growing increasingly frustrated with the system, feeling unrecognized in the suffering that his family has had, and basically being like, well, nobody cares about me, so I have to care about myself, and it's the fault of these other strangers that my life is terrible, and quoting, you know, racist historical figures in his job, and then he gets fired. But then we have what I've termed his benscalation into outright hate crimes and domestic terrorism. So kind of his tipping point is when his father dies. So racist grandpa is dead, but his legacy lives on. <laughs> oh, which I had a um, observation there. In the previous episode, he expressed to Otis and Mercy that he didn't want to make Supergirl a martyr mm. and how his father in this situation kind of became a martyr for that ideology. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, so initially, after the funeral, after his confrontation with Lena, he's getting drunk with his pals. They're having some man bonding over their sadness and complaining about how their lives have been ruined by aliens. Mm -hmm. And he decides that it's a fitting tribute to racist grandpa to create Molotov cocktails, which, ha, are Russian, Mm. and set the nth metal plant that put his family out of business on fire. And, yeah, sure, that's just casual arson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know. But then... They realize that there were some people inside the building. But she's very concerned about it when he sees a person running out. And you had noted about how he was so concerned later on in the episode in present time. When they want to kill Jensen. Yeah. And he's like, no, that's that's a human. Suddenly it's unacceptable. Exactly. He only feels bad about it because it's a member of the human race that needs to st- 
stage a biological takeover and like overwhelm the aliens or whatever he thinks mm-hmm. is so cool. But then upon realizing that it's actually a Bravik, which we had seen in season two as well. So it was kind of neat that they started bringing back these different alien species that we've already been exposed to. More positive world building. It is. But so he sees a Bravik, which is the same species that injured him in the start of his flashback narrative when he was trying to stop the kind of riot and the attack on the plant that he is now destroying. And as soon as he realizes that it's an alien, A, he experiences kind of like a a trauma trigger because he almost died that last time. Mm -hmm. But he decides that the best solution to this problem is to beat the guy to death, which I don't know about you, but seems like a little bit of an extreme reaction, even when one is upset. Yeah. And then you also have the nice symmetry of the burning metal plant in contrast to his house burning down because of the aliens Mm -hmm. earlier in the episode. Kind of an eye for an eye type situation. Yes, exactly. And then from there, he kind of continues expanding his reach and his social influence. And one of the things that he does, I remember I told you when we were making our notes, it gave me flashbacks to my like drug resistance education as a kid because he's using these very standard persuasive tactics in order to like lure people in by being a little bit deceptive about why. Like he runs into the deep who had fired him from his job at National City University. And it turns out she and her spouse went through a similar situation where they lost their house because of Rain's attempt to journey to the center of the earth. And she's very frustrated and upset about it. And he's like, oh, well, I have this support group. And it gives her this nice little pamphlet, much like how uh, the creepy Supergirl worshippers were handing out pamphlets to Sam. Mm. But he uses this language that makes it sound like it's, you know, just like a nice group for people to share their feelings and like voice their their anxiety. And that's what's called the foot in the door tactic, where you start by asking people to give small things and small pieces of themselves emotionally. And then you escalate it further and further so that and they feel more comfortable so they won't say no. Mm-hmm. And this situation is not to be confused with the actual support group that we see in the premiere episode of the season with the aliens. Oh, yeah. But it is interesting because later on in the episode, they say that Fiona, the alien who was moderating the support group, they were saying that she was organizing aliens to like fight back. That's a good point because the way she describes it to Jean is... um a neighborhood watch program so that people don't die. Yes. Um, but they say that, you know, beneath the disguise, she's a monster, one who is organizing other monsters to defend themselves against us and kind of framing it like it's maybe what this support group is that Ben is organizing. Yeah, like it's some kind of like insurgency movement or like a domestic terrorist group. When Yeah, when in reality, they're just venting and like... It's a therapy circle. Yeah, giving <laughs> updates on their lives and how to cope with things. Yeah. And then in the midst of all of this, Ben's increasingly extreme behavior starts catching the attention of like the officially organized supervillain gang. And you start getting the mysterious figures dressed in black pulling up in unmarked cars and offering Mm -hmm. him deals and what have you. And what was really striking, particularly in his conversation with Mercy, is like he was firmly convinced that she was like working for the government and planning to arrest him or whatever. And yet, like, A, didn't seem to be all that concerned or remorseful. And B, she made this intriguing statement in which she said that, you know, people loved him and you have a rare gift for communication. Like Franklin Roosevelt, famous for his fireside chats to reassure the United States throughout the Great Depression. Or Mussolini the dictator of Italy during World War II. And like the man's a history teacher, you'd think he'd be a little concerned at the fact that he's being compared to both of those people simultaneously (laughs) or to a violent dictator at all. 
But he's just like, no, I'm chill with that, and that speeds us right up to the present, where we see that he's getting ever more violent. He's encouraging more and more people to become violent. He's doing things that are like actively harmful to society because if you, you know, if you take out Supergirl, that's someone who actually protects them from other kinds of threats,、mm-hmm. even on a day to day basis, like trains crashing or yeah. And he doesn't have any remorse for any of it, and the show makes that very clear. Like you're not supposed to sympathize. With him, he's very clearly on the side of the bad guys. At no point does it ever seem like he might have a moment where he's like, "Oh, I guess I'm doing something wrong." Like he feels totally justified, and you're not supposed to like it.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got this incredibly in-depth look at this character of Anne Lockwood, but we also had a new perspective on our main characters in this episode. Yeah. So the angle that they took with this episode was for us to get to see what all of our heroes look. Like from the lens of someone who doesn't think they're heroes, and in so doing, demonstrated where a lot of the characters, particularly the human characters, ended up having. Somewhat of a blind spot because they didn't think it was enough of a problem that they needed to support it, which kind of goes back to the conversation James and Nia had in 402, where James was concerned about like when do you editorialize and how do you do it because you want to try to keep reaching as many people as possible for as long as possible so that you'll be able to persuade them.、Mm-hmm. And each of the each of the characters, as we see them interacting with Lockwood, do things. That kind of brush him off, as I said a little bit earlier. But when you initially see Alex dealing with him in the ambulance after he tries to do the right thing and stop the riot at the nth metal plant, she assumes that he was part of it, and then he got hurt trying to attack the aliens, even though he's clearly not dressed like somebody who works there. And her her bedside manner definitely leaves a little something to be desired, <laughs> which makes me wonder why she was even treating him in. The first place, like there was an ambulance there that wasn't sent by the DEO. Where were the real EMTs?、Um, <laughs> but you know, she kind of just gets the information from him that she wants, and then she's like, "Well, here, do this, and you'll be fine." And then walks away and leaves him feeling very unsettled because a, she didn't really express any interest in the fact that he was actively trying to stop the attack on the aliens, which is also her job in this particular case. But then he also is like, "Well, why was the FBI involved?" In this, in the first place, this is not something that seems like it's their job,、mm-hmm. and was left feeling very unsatisfied on that front as well because nobody was really communicating effectively.、Mm-hmm. And on Alex's part, this was interesting because this particular moment in the flashback is pinned to around episode two hundred five, which is right around when Alex is sort of adjusting her worldview about her perspective as a law enforcement agent to begin with. Like she kind of. Was coming to the realization that she doesn't need to assume that every alien is immediately a criminal in two o three. But here she's kind of having that same quick reaction of, "Well, you were involved; you must have been a threat," which we see her do again in season three with Julia,、mm-hmm. and we have yet to see. How she's gonna balance that in season four, but it seems like it's kind of setting a tone for like we might still see some conflicts there,、yeah. and so that you know we got to see one of her flaws as a character through this person's eyes, even though she was obviously there. Trying to do something good, the bad guys in the situation obviously it doesn't feel good to them. And then the next person that you see Lockwood interact with, who who we know is Lena, which makes sense because we found out that racist grandpa previously had a contract with Luther Corp, and the reason that their family is falling economically on hard times is because Lena, through the process of rebranding and trying to move away from her brother's image and her brother's morally questionable deeds and projects.、Mm-hmm. Is reshuffling her business holdings, refocusing what technologies she wants to develop, what directions she wants to take the company in, which goes back to that you know, progress concept. Exactly, specifically because when Ben tries to approach her about losing the steel contract, she kind of just dismisses it casually, out of hand, as a business decision. Which for her, as a particularly wealthy and economically secure person,、mm-hmm. it doesn't feel very hurtful because she's been very she's insulated from understanding what that. Feels like on a visceral level, which we got a, a very clear demonstration of how difficult, even physically, it was for him to get in contact with her, and how she said it's designed that way that she's hard to reach. Yep. 
got to keep the commoners, you know, out where they belong. <laughs> yeah. um, Which if Lena has this concern about, you know, being a force for good, then that's definitely something that she should work on in terms of that connection to actual people. Yeah, and she actually does seem to recognize her misstep Mm -hmm. because you see her show up after the few during why she had to walk in during the middle of the funeral if she was there to pay (laughs) her respects. I don't know. But um (laughs) You tried. (laughs) It probably would have been more effective if she'd been there the whole time and they just happened to pan it and make it look like he'd noticed her there. Mm. Yeah, but I think they might have deliberately wanted it to be kind of hostile. Good. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. So but we see that Lena at least, out of all of the characters who've interacted with this man, she's the one who has the longest term relationship and really even knows at all who he is as a person and recognize that maybe she handled things wrong and she tries sort of to to offer to help but by this point it's too late his resentment has set in his anger has set in his hurt feelings and feeling of disenfranchisement have set in and he just blows her off completely yeah and the third person that we see who who he interacts with at least human to human in, in two ways actually. in two different ways um yeah i was i forgot about the thing about him and the guardian um is James. And James grants him an appointment to speak to him after the Daxmite attack and what have you. And for some reason, because he's a subscriber. Well, because he, but also as potentially if he's like pretending he's still a professor, because he never says that he, that he did something wrong that cost him his job. Although interestingly, this was right around when Lena and James had that conversation about getting subscriptions. Mm, true. So maybe so maybe he was fostering kind of a connection. Yeah. Trying to keep that reader base there. <laughs> yeah. But when Ben's trying to communicate to James that, you know, yeah, you covered this stuff, but you didn't do it for very long and people are still suffering, which is very reminiscent of humanitarian crises all over the world and situations in the States as well, like the hurricane damage last year. He's like, okay, you covered it for like a week and it's not still present in the forefront of people's minds. It's not actively being talked about like on the sections of the paper that everybody reads. James kind of brushes off that concern, partially because he's like, I got to take this call from my new boss, which happens a lot when you're trying to talk to busy, important people. (laughs) Which is kind of an interesting detail in terms of like this interrupting the normal course of our main character's lives. Yeah. Like how he interrupted Lena as well. Oh, true. He did. Yeah. He try he tries to force his way in and and get noticed. And then when he feels like he's not receiving like the attention and the respect that he believes he deserves, mm-hmm. he carries that with him and he doesn't let it go in the way that maybe a normal person would and be like, oh, the editor of the magazine has to take a call from the CEO who owns it. Like, that's mm-hmm. more important than me. Or that's just a thing that happens. <laughs> Normal people don't take that stuff personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second thing in terms of, of Ben and his perception of James is that after the Guardian unmasking scandal, you have him commenting on, oh, I met him. You know, I met him, which, A, that's like very egotistical the way he's saying it. Mm. And he's like, you know, I always thought he was soft. But I mean, if he's going to be a human supporting the rights of other humans, I guess I could get back on board with it. And it's kind of like the old political strategy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Which is the first time that we're seeing the plot thread, perhaps, of the people's perception of James and possibly putting him in this role against aliens. Yeah. Well, I'm, I don't remember if I said this previously, but I feel like they they might be setting us up to, to get both Lena and James somewhat caught in the middle. Yeah. Well, and in a different way than Alex might get caught in the middle. Yeah, that makes sense given, especially this episode, we see that Ben has this like established relationship with Lena and now he has this perception of Guardian puts him in this kind of role. It would make sense for them to be intertwined in this conflict. Yep. So so now that we've we've looked at like the human characters, we also saw Ben Lockwood interacting with our alien characters, Jean and Kara. And what's interesting is that they're the only ones who ever directly confront the anti-alien xenophobia and the racism that's being spewed out by the humans around them. You see Jean directly in the face of racist grandpa during the attack on the metal plant and calling him out for the fact that his employees went and did it and he didn't think to put a stop to it and that, you know, they committed a crime against other citizens of the country. Which the sort of concept of bystander came up again here. 
mm-hmm. as a contrast to both Kara and Nia, who kind of put themselves in the situation to prevent things from escalating. This character, racist grandpa, just kind of let it happen. Yep. Yep, he sure did. <laughs> But the other unfortunate thing with Jean, although in Ben's mind, he doesn't actually know that he's interacted with Jean more than once mm-hmm. because the other time that he sees him is when Jean is fighting the Daxmites as Martian Manhunter and um, offers like the – this must be where Alex gets her bedside manner lessons from because oh. <laughs> Jean gives like the worst reassurance that everybody's safe now – after he fights off the Daxamite and then flies away. And like, so... it's literally like the This Is Fine cartoon. You look at that thing and their whole house That's is true. on fire. Oh my and God. the poor kid is like, even my bike is burning. Like, what is this? And it's like, Jean, that's not fine. Like, yeah, they're, yeah. they're alive. But you missed the part where you destroyed their house. Yeah, this is another example of kind of what our characters that we're familiar with are saying goes actively against what this family is experiencing. Yes. Because we had the the two speeches on the screen. Like, do not be afraid and have hope. And then you're safe now. You're safe now as your house has like burst into flames (laughs) from like basement to the roof simultaneously. That's the new this is fine meme. You're safe now. Yep. Well, and and so then our last one, which I was very curious as to how it was going to work because we saw a promo still of Kara interacting with Ben Lockwood. And I was like, what context would there be for her interacting with him? Yeah. And we discover it's because he assumes that after he gets fired, it's because of the one visibly alien student in his class. Well, there are actually a couple in the... um Well, there was more than one, but the one who vocally protested what he was teaching Mm -hmm. and he assumes it was her doing and her fault. And let me tell you, I've been in classes with professors who have not been like racist, but have been unreasonable. And it's rarely just like one complaint when it's someone who's that bad. It's usually many. And the dean even said that. But in his mind, he's convinced because this was someone who looks visibly like an alien and who had the disrespect to tell him he was wrong in front of people and kind of publicly embarrass him a little, mm-hmm. that it must be her fault. And so he follows her to our favorite alien bar on a very familiar looking karaoke night. Yes. And bursts out into this really obnoxious tirade and continues to get angrier and angrier in the thing. And Kara steps in as, you know, we would expect her to as Kara Danvers or as Supergirl (laughs) and lies a lot more smoothly than people seem to think she can. Yes. (laughs) Because he takes one look at her and he's like annoyed that she got in the way because he's like, well, you're not an alien. Mm -hmm. And this is at a point in Kara's life where she is deliberately trying to detach herself from anything human-like about her. Yeah, because this was right after... That was in Shot Through the Heart, actually. Oh, yeah. Which is... Written by Derek. Written by Derek. (laughs) Convenient, that. (laughs) But this is kind of not long after Kara's getting, like, a little bit back on an even keel emotionally. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't blink at what he says. She doesn't stammer like we sometimes would see occasionally in season one. Mm -hmm. Um, She just totally rolls with it and makes an effort to de-escalate the situation. She cuts off his rant. She physically separates his victims from him Mm -hmm. and completely changes the subject as a distraction. And then when he continues to try to cause a problem, she kind of makes jokes that are a little, in his mind, I'm sure, embarrassing or just disrespectful. But then physically removes him and tells him to leave and that he's his attitudes and his behavior are not welcome, mm-hmm. which is exactly what one should do yeah. when confronted by something like that in real life. Cara being a good role model for viewers. She is. I mean, obviously not everyone can threaten to dislocate your shoulder <laughs> when when you want to get somebody out of their face. But the way that she interceded, she saw something that was wrong. She came over and she deliberately interacted and she used the fact that she looks human to her advantage because she knew he would listen to her. Yes. And, you know, that's that's one of those things where she's in a weird place where it's like a blessing and a curse, but she can at least recognize the times when she can do good with it Mm -hmm. and protect other people, even if on the inside, obviously, it's going to hurt her as well in some sense, because he's saying these things and she knows that if he knew who she was, he'd say them about her, too. Mm -hmm. And that scene in particular was interesting in terms of like interrupting the tone of the episode. 
just the sense of like, we're very intensely following this very heavy. Yeah. Very heavy story about the radicalization of this character. And then we're like, oh, we're back to normal programming because Kara's here being Kara, kind of behaving in a very Kara-esque way. And this scene and the scene where James is looking up at Kat on the screen Mm. at press conference, it was just an interesting feeling because I felt like we were propelled back into a regular episode. Exactly. Which, number one, you'd want structurally because you need to give the audience a little bit of levity because of how heavy the episode was. Yeah. So you do need to give people a mental pause to, like, let out that tension and and relax and laugh a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it was also a very clever reminder of this is all going on under the cover of your normal day to day, Mm -hmm. whether you realize it or not. Yeah, it shifts the tone back to like, oh, we're back to this normal everyday situation. But then you go back to the reality that is all of this hate going on in places that we don't always pay attention to. Exactly. And the other interesting fallout, to borrow the title of last week's episode, <laughs> from that interaction with Kara and his the former student at the bar, is that when the final bits of the episode push us back to the present, we find out that Jean was 100% right about those two attacks being connected because it was Agent Liberty who attacked the bar. Yeah. I think they even showed a flash, right? They did. Yeah. They, you saw him throwing the, the explosive. To try to cue in maybe the more casual viewers who don't already know that this is Agent Liberty's backstory. Correct. Yeah. So basically, in terms of getting to see the way our hero characters have been perceived by this person, it's a very nice way of depicting how much your worldview shapes the way you judge other people. Mm-hmm. And that that in turn affects how everybody behaves because you're going to treat people according to how you perceive their behavior, their actions, the way they look. And then the way you treat them is in turn going to affect how they treat you in response. And that's where you start like what we see now in a lot of countries with the way political tensions have escalated. That's why, because you have all of this disinformation out there feeding these negative, anxious perceptions of the other as different. And then people are naturally immediately more hostile or more defensive in their social interactions. And it just causes the problem to grow versus, you know, Kara's approach, which is you want to you want to take the time to really talk to people and get to know them on with at least a little bit of a personal touch before you start in with that. Mm-hmm. True to her motto, hope, help, and compassion. And it is true. And that's kind of the point of the episode. Mm-hmm. And in the next episode, Kara will be rising from her convenient nap confined in a dark suit. <laughs> so we'll see if that comes into play at all. Yeah, Kara's not a fan of enclosed spaces. Yeah. <laughs> Which in a kind of realistic way isn't always a problem. So true. we'll see if they do anything with it. I would like at least something in terms of it. but I would just like, whether it's serious or comedic, I would like a moment of Kara waking up and being like, what? <laughs> Yeah. Is this <laughs> my dream of it being like a dramatic POV shot to parallel with the pod thing isn't probably going to happen, but I can dream. <laughs> you would like that mistress of sadness. <laughs> I would. I would indeed. And then we'll also see a bit of a Jean storyline, it seems, and some stuff with me and James. Yes. And then also some stuff with Lena and Brainy and presumably Alex a little bit mm-hmm. as they try to figure out how to make the air breathable again for Kara. Yes. Maybe she can get like an anti-kryptonite inhaler. I like that. And they can't like cure Kara from being affected by it because then they'd never be able to use the pod device again. So they'll have to get rid of it somehow in the air. It's true. I wonder if, ooh, I wonder if Lena's cure is going to involve nanobots because because we did see Handsome oh, Jack. Perhaps. What if she's going to summon nanobots to eat all the kryptonite out of the air? I don't know. We'll have to see. But I hope that they address some of how Lena is connected to this event in terms of the lead oh, dispersal it, device or the kryptonite. Or the kryptonite itself. Yeah, because it's just like she shows up and they're all like, thank you for being here. You're saving us, which is, you know, also true. But I would like to see Lena grapple with the fallout. See, now, I did not get that tone from it because the only one who directly addressed her was Alex. And it was Alex acknowledging that maybe she was being a little bit unfair to keep asking Lena to work with them. Right. But my point is that this might be her fault in a way. Well, yeah. But I'm saying, but like, I didn't feel like it was a tone where the the show was being like, hey, look, Lena's awesome. No, I just meant in terms of hoping that this angle is addressed because it hasn't been yet. 
You mean in terms of Lena recognizing that she did make a mistake last year, maybe? Yeah, but also in connection to the concept that Katie had brought up, which is the things that she makes may not always be used in the way that she hopes that they are. They, they aren't necessarily used for good. That is true. I mean, she said that having seen some of the scripts, so I would assume it will come up. Well, she had at least the first four, so maybe in this next episode. We'll be pleasantly surprised. And just tying into that progress idea, but the scientific angle. Ah, yes, true. And on that note, that wraps up this episode of Supergirl's Attic. You can send questions to us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at Supergirl's Attic, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.